Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses World with the World War II gave us writing for Godot and Oklahoma. Without the arts, we are diminished. We had the kind of creative freedom. I was, I was on television as a child, and then I had I was in Cotty's happy hour. She leaned across to me and she said, one day, you know, you'll be doing that. Mind-boggling. They were even lined with purple leather. Uh, went to the ABC and audition. I was so fit at the end of that, you could have ended me in the Melbourne Cup. I, and I still firmly believe that great work can be made in small places. If nobody's going to respect your talent, you've got to respect it. I hope I've been entertaining, that's all. Well, that's very kind of you, Peter. But you are a friend. And <laughs> <laughs> as are you. Yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. Hello. I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft, career and what matters to them. Today we feature singing teacher and performer Peter Bodner. Peter is a singing teacher based in Sydney. He trains professional singers in the music theatre and classical performing arts industry. He harnesses over 30 years in the business as a singer, actor and teacher and now enjoys fostering the careers of both up-and-coming performers and industry legends. I've had the delight of treading the boards with Pete and relished the opportunity to catch up over Zoom during our recent stays at home. Can you hear yeah. her? I can. Yes, I know her. That's that, a, new, that's a, that's new a recent thing, isn't thing. it? It is uh, recent. And they've, I think they've upgraded the picture quality as well. It, yes, I have Maybe no Maybe that or I have a new computer. So it, no, I have it, no it, wrinkles on Zoom. Yeah. There's a sort of beauty mode. They <laughs> That's I thought you were looking good. <laughs> well, I am. <laughs> Peter Bodner, lovely to see you, albeit from our respective homes in in time of lockdown. Yes, again. Again. It's um it's the new norm. Well, let's hope not for too long, but um we must do what we must do. I imagine the the craft of teaching singing would have to take place online during during these precarious times. Um, what's it like teaching singing online during COVID? It's different. It has it's ha- has its disadvantages, but it also has an, its advantages. Um, I, there, I see different details. I hear I hear different details. You lose some quality. Um, I have to rely a lot more on what I can see visually. It's much more intense teaching online because there's, you know, it's it's just much more concentrated. Um, in a day, usually I would see probably seven students and uh, I don't think I could do that. I haven't done that on Zoom and I think that would be too much. Mm. And you do have to concentrate a lot harder because you're dealing with sound limitations. And with this past week, for example, the I don't know what's going on with the internet, but it's been really choppy everybody's been on online i guess working from home and it's crowded yeah the 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 internet's busy i suppose i can't work with everybody online it depends on exactly where they're at uh, and what their needs are so it so it it varies some uh, what i do is i i have uh, technical exercises pre-recorded and they play them from their end because of the delay. Uh, but I can't really, with some people, 
I can't make it that formulaic because they're at a place where I need to be able to adjust very quickly. So I need to be in the studio where I've got a piano real time and sometimes to, to design an exercise that is going to be specifically right for that situation. Yes. T- tailor the, the needs of each particular student and, and deliver mm. what you can. Yeah, indeed. The last time uh, I caught up with you, we had a splendid night in New York at a piano <laughs> a piano bar. Um, I wish there was more of a culture of piano bars in Australia, uh, but I find them joyous places because everybody is there singing their hearts out. It's it's quite a therapeutic experience, I think, and and very communal. Certainly is, certainly is. Um, I hear it uh, well. Pre-COVID, I would hear it once a month uh, from the Hayes. They would have their sing-along night and because I live across the street from the Hayes Theatre. And, you know, in my kitchen, I could hear 50 or so people belting out, don't cry for me, Argentina. And they're really, (laughs) (laughs) they're having a whale of a time. And it is a wonderful thing to be able to do. It's, you know, it's it's thrilling. Um, That's the effect of singing. Something I talk about with students is that singing can be terrifying for some people and thrilling for others because what we're doing with our voices is, well, what our larynx is designed to do is rise and close so that we can swallow. So when the larynx is held in a position where it is open and lowered slightly, the brain registers that it is in great danger. We are most vulnerable at our airway. So primarily your, your body's freaking out and going, we could, we could die here. So for some people, there's this deep seated primal fear because you are doing something that your body was not meant to do. So in effect, um, seeing isn't really that's not that natural. It's or it isn't natural. It's something that, that is learned, but but it's not something that our body does naturally. But when we do it, for a lot of people, it is the thrill that you would get from an extreme sport. You're, you're, you're on a really basic level, you're cheating death. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a thrill that comes with that. Yeah. So singing is, uh, would you say, a psychological game also? It's a, a, a psychological preparation? Certainly. Certainly. There's a lot of inner work that you have to do um, with singing. As there is for for anything, you know, I had a singing teacher once tell me um, to get a book called The Inner Game of Tennis, because that was the first book of that style that that was written. Since then, there's the inner game of everything you can find. There's probably an inner game of singing, and it's, it's performance psychology. This particular singing teacher that I had really loved tennis so (laughs) um (laughs) and uh so i have i I tell students about my experiences um from uh dealing with tension but these are all my I, i will tell them what i think about and the games that i play inside my head but they have to find their own i just help them find understand what 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 I'm experiencing, so that they can then use their own images and um, and words for that. Also, with a lot of students, you know, I, uh, I I talk about putting themselves in the zone, even 
when they're in their lesson, in their mind, they're not just singing an exercise. They, they need to be, put themselves in the zone, put, the, put yourself on stage, make it an aria, make it a song that you're singing and you will achieve so much more from that exercise because you, you go into that, uh, into a performance level uh, in, and your body responds. Uh, visualization. Yeah, that's a visual, I suppose, visualization, imagination. A certain amount of um, um, there's a certain amount of stuff that happens when we go on stage. Well, a lot of us will just do we, we do stuff that we take for granted, um, whether it be just um, retracting and opening up the the throat. Um, you would do it possibly very naturally when you're on stage, as opposed to um, and, and not know that you're doing it if you're a very instinctive singer, um, and then. Um, find that it's not happening in the lesson. So it helps for a student to, for me to tell a person to, okay, in your mind, imagine you're on stage doing this. It's not a scale. It's not an exercise. And, and you, you're singing, make it a song. Sing it musically and make it in, and interpret it and make it a song. And usually, bang, it comes together. Singing has taken place in cultures over over centuries. I mean, it's such an important part of human expression. Um, and when we're in full flight, whether solo or um, in a choir, a chorus or whatever, um, it can set off extraordinary endorphins, can't you? It's a, it's a real feel-good uh, activity. Exactly. Just as I mentioned, it, that it, it's, it's like an extreme sport. It's like throwing yourself down a mountain on skis or riding a horse or... It, it gets the endorphins going and you feel great. And there's all the, there's all the, the, the other stuff that I don't know as much about, uh, which is um, vibrations affecting your body. And, you know, you get the effects that people have from, from chanting, etc. cetera. Um, so it probably has a therapeutic benefit from that point of view that others may know more about. Can you recall the first time that you started to vocalise either with speech or, or with singing? And how old yes. might you have been? <laughs> yes. Um, from a very, very early age, I recall just making, being fascinated with making sounds, all sorts of weird sounds. And, and it really, um, and I can remember being, being by myself and being caught on a couple of occasions making sounds like somebody would, somebody would come around the corner and, catch me and at that age I would feel terribly embarrassed um if I saw a kid doing that now I'd probably think it was really cute but uh and then at uh at the age of six I was in grade one uh I was possibly five or six um my parents got was a thing that was called a three-in-one and it was a three-in-one was a record player a cassette player and a radio and uh and they were trying it out and they were learning how to record and they said Peter have a go and, and sing something and I sang my school song and my parents and my teacher my grade one teacher were friends and they they played it uh, for her and in class the next day she said Peter Bodner stand up on your seat and sing the school song and I did and that's when it all started <laughs> I got, I got a little cone of butcher's paper with jelly beans in it for doing that, which was usually reserved for birthdays. And uh, But that was the start. That was the start of, of singing. 
the re the reward, but also uh, you must have been seduced by the attention and the applause as well. Yeah, all of that. Yes, all of that. I was very seduced by that. And um, then I had a piano teacher who also played violin. I was I was fortunate in that I grew up in northern Queensland in a sm very small town called Innisfail, but it had a large Italian community who loved opera. And uh, Innisfail in the seventies got a, a conservatorium built that I, th I think there were larger plans for it that may not have gone ahead, but nonetheless, they built this conservatorium. And throughout the 60s, 70s, through, to, through the 80s, they had an opera festival every year. And Opera Australia people would go up there and have kind of working holidays in the tropics. And they'd do Love OM or Rigoletto and we'd have a we'd have a, um, a professional conductor and, and director. And as I got old enough, I was in on that. And I would, you know, sort of hang off the coattails of these people. Great, great people, old school Opera Australia people who taught me a lot of things from makeup to stagecraft to from a very young age. So, uh, yeah, so we, I was lucky to have enough to live in a town with this opera festival. And... My piano teacher, I was probably a little more than six, maybe a little bit more. Um, my piano teacher said she was playing in the orchestra, playing violin. And she said, tell your mother to take you to the opera. And my mum went to the opera and, and she did. She took me. And I remember seeing a, uh, this man, a tenor on stage singing and just thinking, that's the most wonderful thing. I want to do that. And um, that's kind of when it happened. I think that was, from memory, I think that guy was a tenor, was a singer named Henry Howell. And years later, I did get to work with him when I was about 18 in, in The Bartered Bride. In Queensland? In Queensland, yeah, actually at, at that opera festival. So I was, I was in second or third year when I was studying and my singing teacher was also going up there to do that production. So it became part of my course that I went up there and played the role of Vasek um, and with Henry and, um, and my singing teacher at the time. And Georg Tintner was the conductor. Um, yeah. what, what were the LPs in the, in the house that, that you played on that three-in-one? Did the, the family have a classical collection? Or was it musical theatre popular? There was everything. There was everything. My sister, um, my middle sister was into Susie Quattro. She played Susie Quattro all the time. And strangely enough, Nana Muscuri. My older sister... Um, Contrast. <laughs> not a combination, I know. My older sister, um, mostly classical. She also played piano, so, um, so that was more her interest. And um, my mother loved Strauss waltzes and opera. So we, it was just such an eclectic, and the Seekers, oh gosh, the Seekers, a lot. My older sister loved the Seekers. And I would, um, years later, one of my sisters got a stereo in her room and I remember I would go in there at night instead of watching TV and put the headphones on and listen to Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals and, um, and, and opera, Puccini mostly. But loved, loved the old Rodgers and Hammerstein 
Well, they're works of art. They're works of art. Wonderful. Equal, equal to any opera. Absolutely. Yeah. What do you listen to today to uh, to chill out and for, for enjoyment? What That's genres? interesting. I used to listen to music theatre a lot, um, particularly when I was working out at the gym. <laughs> <laughs> and thinking, please, nobody come and ask me what I'm listening to because it'll be <laughs> any particular show. Blow the image, anything. And most of the time, it was because I was researching stuff while I was working out. So I would be listening to, you know, finding repertoire and, and things like that, and and finding music for students. Um, I do that kind of differently now, um, but I think in my downtime, I will mostly listen to jazz and classical. Yeah. Very rarely will I put on, on an opera. Sometimes on the weekend I might play a musical uh, while I'm doing some stuff around the house, um, like something, something that's, that I haven't heard yet. Um, yeah, I often listen to jazz and sopranos. Yeah. 20 years I, I listened to music theatre solid, I think, until I, I took the 12-step program. Um, yeah. to, uh, to, to, to get off it. Um, yes. Yeah. I mean, yes, you, you look at them, listen to them for, for possible repertoire, but um, also they're, they're a great form of escape, aren't they, to go into those other worlds of whatever fantastic. the show shall be. Yeah. Fan- fantastic worlds of escape. Um, I probably just don't relate to many of them now as much as I used to, the, the, the newer ones, just, yeah. just through age. Yeah, yeah. And also, um, you know, we're a similar age and um, all those Sondheim musicals coming out for the first time and you'd, you'd run down the shop and, and get the LP and take oh. it home and, and just sit there and listen to every word. Absolutely. And they were amazing. Can you remember the first time Into the Woods came out? We thought, what is this? Wow. wow. Yeah. And then we got it on VHS as well. Uh-huh. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Yes, good times, good times. So um, your uh, tertiary study consisted of uh, a musical focus? There was a musical focus, yeah. It was tricky because back then there, was no, there wasn't really a musical theatre course anywhere. There was, you know, um, I was an, a Stedford kid and um, out of the blue after summer Stedford, I... Got, I got some information from NIDA in the mail, unsolicited. I thought, who sent this to me? And um, it was really strange. It just got sent to me in the mail. Um, and I spoke to my speech and drama teacher and they said, well, look, you're, you'd be too young anyway. And um, so I, I didn't even bother about that. So after school, I auditioned for schools. Um, most of them were, the drama schools, most of them in Queensland were associate diplomas. Um, I auditioned for the conservatorium and got accepted there um, and then uh, auditioned for what was then Darling, Darling, uh, was it? Darling Downs Institute of Advanced Education, and, uh, which is now the University of Southern Queensland, I believe, and got accepted into their drama program and started out as a drama major. Six months into that, music department were using me for their their productions because I could sing and I found that, well, I'm not singing as much as I want to. And I I suppose I didn't really connect with these, with the drama people because I was very much musical theatre boy. 
And, and I jumped ship and went over to the music department. In retrospect, I probably should have just gone with the conservatorium. Um, and I rode that three years out, um, studying classical music, majoring in voice, with an option in, in drama. By the end of it, I was the only male voice major. Uh, so in opera class, I would learn to walk like Chacho San and die like Mimi with all the rest of the girls. <laughs> and then... They're good skills to have. <laughs> yes. And then when I left there, I went to the conservatorium, but not as a not as a uh, a degree student. I went there to study with um, Queensland Conservatory of Music, that is studying with Donald Smith. I auditioned for Opera Queensland in my final year at Darling Downs, and as they said at my conservatorium audition, because it was a similar panel three years earlier, they they said we'll we'll take you on and we'll give you we'll give you a contract, and um, but you're very young. So while you're here, we want you to work with Mr. Smith. Said the same thing to me when I auditioned for the conservatorium. And uh, Donald Smith, for those who don't know, is a legendary Australian tenor, um, wonderful, wonderful singer. And, and I gladly went and worked with Don and he was like a father to me and taught me so much. He, there's so much that you, that you learn from, well, you learn different things from different teachers and Don had done it. He'd, he'd, he'd been out there performing. And while we had technique, the technique pr it probably wasn't that much of a technical lesson that I would ever have with Don. But he, he taught me how to sing. It's funny. He, Don was, all, was, you know, Queenslander. Although he had had this career around the world, but sounded like a Queenslander. And, um, <laughs> and I went in and I sang for him. And I finished singing. He looked at me and said, you've been taught by women. <laughs> <laughs> so Don taught, was that, taught me to sing like a man. <laughs> was that your Chocho Sam walk? I must have been. It must have been. <laughs> so, so your vocal type is tenor. Have you yes. found that it has shifted as you've got older? The voice? Um, yes, it has. It has. There was a big change at 40. Um, and uh, some of that was technical work that I that I embarked upon in my 30s that, that made that change. Uh, but I think a lot of it was just maturity and unloading of baggage and fear hmm. and, um, and being able to get to let go. And so... You know, I'm a tenor. I'm not one of those tenors that likes to go up to a top Z and sit there. I'll pop up and then I'm happy to come back down again. Um, and, you know, if I was still in the opera world, I would probably be um, what they call a, a compromario tenor. So a compromario would do character roles. Right. Um, and it's, you know, you don't get the big heroic song, but you have to be able to act and move and be very good at languages. Um, when I went, when I auditioned for Opera Queensland, I, I auditioned because I had, uh, there was a great lecturer at Darling Downs named William Dowd, and he lectured in design. And Bill was a great friend also. And he said, at the time, Jonathan Welsh, the choir man, yeah. Dr. Jonathan Welsh, yeah, yep. was, uh, was at Opera Queensland. And Jonathan and I kind of looked similar back then. 
And Bill said, you look like Jonathan Welsh. You should go to them and say, I'm your, I'm your, your understudy for Jonathan Welsh. And with all the chutzpah of a, what was I, 20-year-old, 19, 20-year-old, I did that. Well, I called them first and said, I'd, I'd like to audition. They said, well, I'm afraid you've missed the Queensland auditions, but we have them in Melbourne. So I flew to Melbourne uh, against the wishes of my head of program who said, you can't go because you'll miss a singing lesson, but I went anyway. And flew to Melbourne and went in and, and sang and and they said, and then I think I actually said, I'm your new new understudy for Jonathan Welsh. <laughs> they laughed. And I spent the next three years understudying Jonathan Welsh. <laughs> wow. And uh, yeah, in the in Copper Mario roles, um, which was which was wonderful. I remember one designer mistakenly put us in the same colour. Oh, I forget what it was, maybe it was Rigoletto. And props people would come and give me my prop and I'd say, no, 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 not me. <laughs> I'm not Jonathan. And they'd be very confused because <laughs> we just, we looked similar. <laughs> so that was, you know, that was all that chutzpah, all that, all that confidence to go in and say, hire me for this. Yeah. And it pays, um, pays sometimes, doesn't it, to have that chutzpah? I mean, uh, they can only say no. I had it. That's right. I wish I still had it. Well, yes, as we get older, we do tend to lose a bit of chutzpah, don't we? Um, we do. And lose that Just, confidence. I mean, when you're in your 20s, you think you can take on the world. Yeah, exactly. Do you sing yeah. in the shower? No, not very much. Sometimes. Uh, where, do you sing on a daily basis? Uh, yes, pretty much. Pretty much. I sing every day during the week. Um in the studio, I tend to try and warm up before I start teaching. Um, I don't really sing on weekends unless I'm doing a gig, unless I'm doing a show. Um, but you're still performing. Just, you're, you're doing a lot of yeah. work with the, the three waiters, for example. I am. I am. I'm still doing that. I've been doing that for 20 years, more than 20 years. Uh, so, And I've had a ball doing that. The three waiters have done that around the world. And uh, and that's great. I, I that's my that's my performance outlet, um, and I have to keep my voice in shape for that. And that's classical you know, as well as musical theatre repertoire. Predominantly opera. Predominantly right. opera. There's yeah. some Neapolitan songs, but it's um, mostly opera. And occasionally we'll do, you know, a hybrid of the show, and uh, and there'll be some opera in it. You raise me up and things like that. And, Every now and again, I get to do a gig that isn't related to the three waiters and drag out some pop or music theatre, which is great fun. Yeah. Well, uh, the gigs that I met you on uh, involved the Hundred Acre Wood and the Magic Faraway Tree, where they did respectively indeed. we, we uh, <laughs> gave our tiggers and eels and... Oh. They Dan Washerlots and Mr. Moonface. Yes. They were fun working for the great Gary Ginevan in Gary Ginevan Attractions. Um, wonderful, Gary. Uh, that one wonderful experience is working for um, audiences that were children um, yeah. who are very unforgiving and can spot if you're not being authentic. Um, Absolutely. So, although we were in Pixie or Fairyland, um, it was, uh, they were great days, great, great learning opportunities. Yeah, had a ball. And you're so right about the kids. Gosh, I think it was the Opera House when we were at the Opera House. Hmm. Um, well, we, we weren't mic'd, were we? 
No, no. No. And that was the great worry. You could not let those you could not let those kids start take away the show. You had to be authentic and you had to be really holding on to them. Yeah. Otherwise we wouldn't be heard. And performing at 10 o'clock in the morning. Oh, yes. Um, I forgot about that. How would you prepare your voice for a, for a 10 a.m. performance? This is, it, it's an interesting question. Um, you know, people say to me all the time, oh, I can't, I can't sing before one. And um, there's a lot to be said for vocal hygiene. Um, I have done doing you know, the three waiters and corporate entertainment. I've sung at many breakfasts where I have a 6 a.m. sound check. And the reality is if you're well and you're hydrated and you're not eating foods and drinking things that, that are going to be bad for your voice, you kind of need, should be able to get up, sing a few scales and be able to do it. So is that what you mean by vocal hygiene, not having any yeah. to toxins in your body or whatever? Um... All sorts. Um, being, remaining hydrated, uh, having a, a, a low acidity diet. Because that's the big thing. Um, Laryngopharyngeal reflux is, is the big thing that, we, that a lot of singers have to struggle with. And look, it's modern living. It's the food that we all eat. It's coffee. It's alcohol. It's condiments, it's spices, it's, it's chocolate, it's soft drinks. Um, all of these things contribute to it. And LPR is <clears throat> silent. We often don't feel it. But for a, for a well-equipped singer, we just go, oh, my voice isn't great today. If you're a beginner, it will feel like, it can feel like, oh, my God, what's, have I ever had a singing lesson? I, I can't do, I could do this yesterday and I can't today. Um, what you're dealing with is... Well, it, gastric acid that, that spills into the larynx, and yes, it burns on the, the vocal folds, but the, you've got these little levers, the arytenoid cartilages that draw the vocal folds together, and they're covered in tissue. And, and that gastric acid, particularly at night when you've been lying down, gets on there, and that area swells. And those levers have to draw those vocal folds together. And when they have to do that, they have to, in the morning, if you have reflux, they have to push through swelling and it's harder for them. So established singers might get, just feels harder to sing today. But for other people, it'll have trouble adducting the vocal folds. And it'll be crackly and messy and, and, and unclean. So that's, that's essentially what I'm talking about. And, you know, I've dealt with many performers who have matinees and things and go, oh, I hate matinees. My voice is never there. And I've, you know, um, helped them with reflux or referred them onto uh, a speech path that I use um, who's helped them if the, if the problem is chronic. And suddenly they go, wow, I can get up in the morning and sing. Wow. That's gross. Yeah. <laughs> it is a little bit. It is a little bit. What I do is gross. Um, <laughs> um, but that's the, yeah, my approach to singing, I kind of like to take the mystery out of it. Yeah. I kind of like to try and make it just that much more accessible. It's like there isn't some magic of, oh, gosh, will my voice be there today? If you're well and you have technique, it will be. It sounds like as a singing teacher or indeed a professional singer, you need to have an awareness of anatomy and, and how the body is structured and works as well. Yes, you do. And, um, and I have a passion for that um, because, you know, I had problems. I had problems with my own singing voice. 
um, and I probably veered away from remaining in the opera world because because my top wasn't what it needed to be and I couldn't get through an aria without being exhausted. Um, and then I went into musicals and still, you know, I still had problems around it, but I would get through it. And then when I stopped doing musicals and decided to stop touring, um, I started studying more uh, to also help my teaching. And I knew about, um, I heard about voice science, relatively new thing in this country back then. And then I looked into it more, particularly um, not just voice science in general, but uh, there's a, there was a, a teacher named Professor Miller. I read his books and unfortunately never got to work with him. Um, then I found um, a way of doing some, some study in Estill. And Joe Estill was um, a woman who put her own voice on the line and, and did clinical trials. And um, which actually, she started in about 1965, uh, which was the year I was born, actually. And then um, she mapped out the various voices that we use, whether it's belt or opera or speech and, and how, it, how it works. And I did initial courses and that and thought, I love this. And I loved anatomy and I absorbed it really quickly. And I just find having that knowledge, the student doesn't, doesn't necessarily need that knowledge, although I like to teach people to have that knowledge, professionals, so that when they're out on the road, they don't need me. They can, you know, they can get, oh, this is what's happening. Mm -hmm. And it becomes a little bit like physiotherapy then in that, okay, we want to achieve this sound. Well, we need to activate this, this, and this. And they, you can then tailor specific exercises to do that. But to do that, you do need to know exactly how it works. Yeah. When, when you're out on the road also, whether touring in a big musical or in a concert uh, scenario, uh, you're inhabiting different spaces, different theatres. Some, some are large, some are smaller. So you're constantly having to adapt what your voice is capable of doing to fill that space. You, you, you're recalibrating, I guess, um, driving Certainly. your instrument. Yeah. Um, so there yeah. must be an essential awareness for that also. Absolutely, particularly if you're not mic'd. Right. So, um, yeah, if, if you're mic'd, it's, it's, a, it's a different story. There, there are other problems you deal with then. Um, but if, if you're singing acoustically, yes, you, have to, you, have, you do have to adjust. Um, and it's sometimes you need someone's ears. It's tricky because you need someone's ears to hear what it sounds like for you. Um, there are some theatres, uh, I've been to theatres, uh, I've been to shows at the Hayes, possibly before it was the Hayes, when it was the Dellinghurst Theatre Company, seeing musicals there and that were not mic'd and it's remarkably dry. Although it's not a large theatre, it just sucks the sound up. You have, to, you have to really adjust and make a very bright, probably twangy sound to really cut through that theatre, the, the, the acoustics in that theatre rather, if it's not mic'd. So you're saying you can give a, a different, a slightly different sound to your voice in order for it to have a reach. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, you can, within the still model, you have the filter, which is basically everything that is from just above the vocal folds through to the lips and teeth. And we have control of that. We can make that filter longer. We can make it shorter or we can make it narrower. Um, now, 
lower frequencies, warmer tones, like larger spaces. Brighter frequencies, um, higher pitches, like smaller spaces. So if I, we have the ability to lower and raise the larynx, in lowering the larynx, that will warm the sound. And these moves are millimeters. They're, they're tiny, tiny, tiny moves, but they affect uh, the voice. If you raise the larynx, you're going to make, you can make it brighter. Um, you have to be careful. If you lower the larynx too much, you can go flat. Um, and there are ways of narrowing the larynx um, around about around the epiglottis area which creates an overtone uh, that, that the human ear hears louder. You know how dogs can hear pitches that, that frequencies that we can't hear. Yeah. It's, a, it's a kind of similar thing. We have um, in the voice, you, you sing a note, you sing, might sing E flat, but then you've got all these overtones above that. And uh, around about two to four kilohertz in sound, those frequencies, the human ear, hears louder than other frequencies. If we add those frequencies into the sound, we create volume. And we know of that as twang. It's a real or, science, isn't it? Singing, yeah. teaching. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah or or I, actually, actually singing. Yeah. Um, Pete, a lot of um, contemporary musical theatre scores seem to be written for these iron-plated extraordinary voices that sometimes buckle under the pressure of, of having to deliver eight shows a week. So do you see that as a real issue? And, and how do we support the alphabas and the avitas of the world who are expected to um, master these extraordinary feats eight times a week? Yeah, they are, they are extraordinary feats and, and extraordinary singers succeed at them. Um, you, you do have to have a, an incredible instrument to begin with. Um, I often tell singers to not be enticed by these, by singers that they may listen to. And it's one thing to emulate them, but know your voice. There, some people just have a really great big sound and that is the, their voice. Um, and other singers will try to emulate that and end up in trouble. The big roles, the Avitas, the the alphabets um, have, usually have alternates these days, as they should. Um, it's interesting, you know, working, doing, working directly with musical directors, as I do uh, quite a bit these days on shows and in, in preparing uh, singers for the, those sorts of roles. What we perceive, for example, Frozen as being a massive, you know, massive belt, very little of it is belted. They want very little belted. It's, it's the odd note. They're, they're really looking for a very, very good mix. Right. Um, and, it, you know, it depends on the show. Muriel, uh, Muriel is, in Muriel's Wedding was probably quite, that was a massive belt. I think Ava is probably also a massive belt. The earlier ones, yeah, they probably were. You know, the 80s was, 80s, 70s as well, big singing. These days, we're getting less and less belt. Belt, the big brassy belt is becoming passe. I think we will be, in two years to come, we'll be looking at that, that sound, that big brassy, that big twangy sound as we now do Rodgers and Hammerstein. Yeah. 
Yeah, I guess uh, styles styles change over various generations, and the the people writing musicals now uh, perhaps yes. have that in mind. Yes, absolutely. Everything, the world is in some ways, fashion is simplifying. Look at the look at the the product Apple. Look at how it's all clean lined and and simple, and that's the, I think that's the the aesthetic. Uh, taste these days and I think musical theatre is becoming like that look at the way Pasek and Paul write so much of it is it's, it's almost speech taken up a little and you add a little bit of quality to make it sound like singing you know yeah. and, and then it becomes cleaner it becomes much much more about the story and the word the text you know yeah. Hamilton, which is uh, a different style of singing altogether, with um, with rap and uh, yeah, R&B. It's it's more about the text and the, the dexterity of the articulators to communicate that text to an audience. That's right, that's right, and and that is musical theatre, isn't it? That's that's the all important element. I think when I was a kid, I was so enticed by musical theatre, possibly because I also had my one foot in opera land. Um, I missed that. I didn't get that. I didn't get that until later, the importance of primarily telling the story. And, um, yeah, it's, it's important for the singer to always make it about the song and not the singer. As tempting as it sometimes is to, yeah. to really show off, <laughs> it's not yeah. your job. Well, we've all seen those singers who, you know, hit the notes and are impressive in hitting the notes, but the song, the singer has no soul. They're not telling any sort of story. That's absolutely right. And, and you, don't, you don't feel moved. And that's, you know, at the end of the day, that's what a good, uh, good performance, uh, a good rendition of a song should be about. Yeah. A friend once told me singing, singing is about, um, conducted to, said to me it's it's about control and release you get some singers that are all about control they're incredible technicians and they have incredible technique and they can sing wonderfully you get other singers that are all about release and they just they just uh, they just pour it out and whether it's opera or rock janis joplin um maria kellis um kiri kanawa is one uh, they just it's all about let go. It may be a little bit wild. Jesse Norman, another one. Um, maybe a little bit wild, but it's kind of thrilling because they're just letting go. And human beings, we all look for that, that release. It's natural. We gravitate to that. And so a listener gravitates to that because it's exciting. Um, I think that's why tenors, the three tenors is 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 enticing because it's it sounds dangerous men singing in really high screaming type voices so people are drawn to it um then you, so then you get I digress slightly then then you get some singers who are amazing and they need to they manage to bring control and release together in one performance and they're usually superstars Pete, um, the singers who are under your tutelage and guidance are certainly in in very good hands uh you operate from a studio in sydney yeah yeah, I do. Yeah, uh, in George Street, across the road from the Queen Victoria building. We've, I've been there for, ooh, I've been there since the mid 90s. And um, unfortunately, that building is, is scheduled for demolition. But uh, one thing, good thing about COVID is that it's given us a little bit more time. So I'm there for a couple more years yet before we have to relocate. But we've been very lucky having the studio looking over the QVB and it's been, 
my little piece of Manhattan experience in a way. <laughs> a lovely vista. Well, hopefully yes. we can um, return to New York and piano bars in... Uh, oh, I hope we do. Not, not too long a time um, and uh, have a great sing around the piano again. Yeah, that would be great. Peter Bodner, thank you for joining Stages today. Uh, my pleasure, Peter. Peter is a vocal coach of terrific reputation and, as you heard today, a lovely bloke. If you're keen to learn more about The Voice, further information can be found at peterbodner.com.au. Thanks to Peter for his insightful chat today. Thanks for joining us. It's always a joy to have your company. I'm Peter Ayers, and you've been listening to The Stages Podcast. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time.